you, but we're in Romans 9 this morning, starting in verse 30. Remember last week we looked at how God preserves a remnant, that it is not all of those who belong to the physical nation of Israel who will be saved, but it is those, it's a remnant that God saves through faith. And in the same way, it is not all those who belong to a church or who are baptized who are saved, but a but those who are saved inwardly. That theme has been going through the book of Romans, that it is not what you do outwardly that makes you a Christian. It is what God does inwardly and through Christ. And so as he deals with the current state of Israel, God's historic people, and why have they rejected Christ? Uh, we're going to deal with the why question now, but last week we looked at how God creates some vessels for destruction and some vessels for uh, glory and mercy. And that is that explains the difference between all of humanity in one sentence. And now we look at this week a little bit more of why that happens. So starting in verse 30, what shall we say then? This is in response to the description of what Israel is doing right now. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness? Even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Carrying on into chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves or submit to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to meditate on that while I stabilize my stand. It's like preaching on a boat when, you're, when your stand is wobbling back and forth. So, and to your relief and maybe to mine as well, we will be moving on from the idea of God's sovereignty in election and, and predestination. It is a very serious topic. It's a very difficult topic. And, and Paul is moving through this argument. But folks, I just want to let you know, you have been through like, uh, what do you call it? Like salvation, sovereignty, hard doctrine 101 class in these last six weeks. Like a, like a hard kind of boot camp of difficult doctrine. So um, well done, and, and may God continue to strengthen you through his word, um, but let us continue to drink from the well that is God's word. So as we look at this, I, I started thinking about humanity in general, that we as human beings were built, wired by God to take pride in our work. We were built to take pride in our work, to accomplish great things. You were built to do that. 
to strive for excellence and peak performance in what you do. You are wired that way by God. It's not a bad thing in any way. Just as we talked about authority, this desire can be corrupted or it can be harnessed for God's glory. When you look at back to the Tower of Babel, is building towers wrong? Is, is architecture wrong? No. But when the motive is we will displace God and make ourselves God, then it is wrong. All the way through to the moon landing, the, the incredible exploration of space in the ocean depths. Right up to medical advancements of open heart surgery on infants. Mankind is wired and built to do these things. And in the same way, we take the same approach with our standing before God. Without the light of the gospel and an embrace of Jesus Christ in a true way, we do the same thing with God. We want to build our own platforms, we want to stand on them, and we want to come to God with what we have done. And that's what this passage addresses. Because it inflates the self, and it corrupts the single most offensive aspect of the gospel that drills down this point, you cannot achieve salvation either by your will or by your works. That's the, that is what the gospel drills down, possibly in the most offensive way. You cannot achieve for yourself salvation either by your will, by your desire to be saved, or by your work in pursuing salvation. Romans 9 earlier on says, It does not depend on man who runs or wills, but on God alone. And so we just read, uh, um, Roland just read for us that Old Testament passage about God laying a cornerstone, a rock of offense. Our first exhortation is do not let this rock offend you. When your pride is assaulted by this rock, do not be offended. We're going to look at why. When I was re uh, researching and studying for this sermon, I came across a quote from R.C. Sproul who wrote, Paul has attributed the unbelief of Israel to God's sovereignty. That was the last two weeks, right? He said, the reason people don't believe is because God is sovereign and he hardens some and he saves others. And now diagnoses that unbelief as being due to a fatal prior commitment to a false means of righteousness. So what he's saying is that although God is sovereign, he can diagnose the unbelief and he can trace it back to a bad prior commitment. In other words, humans are still humans and we do stuff because we're humans. We think certain ways and certain ways lead to salvation, a certain way, and, and all the other ways don't lead to salvation. So if you have a prior commitment to your works as getting you into heaven, you will fall into the trap that the Jews did, which is the, the assumption that you can do that. It's what R.C. Sproul calls a fatal prior commitment, spiritually fatal. And so while God is, has sovereignly created vessels for unique uses, and there's only two, destruction, verse number 921 says, does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So destruction and glory are the only two categories, are the only two uses that human beings have in the hand of God. 
we are still allowed by Scripture to look into the human responsibility as to how they've come to reject salvation. We can't think of God's sovereignty as people who are earnestly crying out to God for mercy and God saying, no, you're not chosen. That's not at all how sovereignty is expressed. When we look at people who either reject God or embrace God, we look at people who consciously and decisively move in those directions. Sovereignty is expressed through the genuine totality of the human will. We see how Israel has come to reject God. And it's because they pursued something that was never going to produce salvation. Look at verse 30. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it, even the righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that righteousness. Hmm. So he's looking back. He said, well, look how the Gentiles were brought into Israel by faith. And yet Israel themselves were, were hardened and pushed out. We looked at that contrast last week. And then Paul brings it to a finer point in this text. He says, isn't it stunning? He's saying, what shall we say about this? Look at the Gentiles. They weren't looking. They weren't pursuing. They weren't reading the scriptures. They weren't going to the temple. They were not sacrificing for their sins. They had no interest in the things of God. And yet they attained what? God's righteousness. How did people who weren't even trying attain to God's holy standard? Paul tells us in verse 30, it's because they pursued it by faith, not by works. That's how they did it. You look at everything surrounding their life, and there was no mechanisms for achieving righteousness. And yet Paul says, but that person became righteous, which is proof that it's not about the things that they did. God's sovereignty and his sovereign grace, as we just sang about, is expressed in faith, salvation through faith. And so Paul is saying, look at this contrast. The Gentiles were not pursuing it. But the Jews who were pursuing it, they failed to reach it. They were on a road that did not lead to the place they thought they were going. It doesn't matter how far or how fast you drive on any given road. If it's not the road that leads to your destination, the harder you work, the faster you drive, the further away you'll get. It's the same with works. If you believe that you can work your way to heaven... And, and there are people in the church who believe this. Like this is not, I know this is Christianity 101, but there are people in evangelical churches who believe this, that they can please God to a point where he will weigh their good deeds and their bad deeds, and if they do enough good, they will be permitted to go into heaven. There are, there are Christians who believe this. And so, but if you believe this, the harder you work, the further you will get from God's righteousness. Because the path you're on is not leading there. That's what Paul is saying. They pursued it, but they did not arrive at it. And yet outsiders who had no book, they had no law, they had no temple, they had no priests, they received and attained the righteousness, which is by faith. What's the difference? Well, we've already said it. It's faith rather than self-reliance. That's why the majority of Israel rejected Christ. Because Jesus Christ came claiming singular preeminence before God. When Jesus claimed that he was 
When he called God Father, do you remember what the Jews did? That was one of the times that they picked up stones to stone him. You think, well, that's a weird thing. We call God Father all the time. But in Jewish culture, to call God your Father was to make yourself equal with God. To, to be included as the same level of his righteousness. And so they said, we reject that. We reject Jesus Christ as being equal with God. Jesus claimed singular preeminence before God and that he was the only way to salvation. To the point, Jesus claimed that he alone accomplished what Israel was trying to do. Do you see that? When Israel was working and working and working and self-righteously praying on the streets and saying, God, you know, look at my righteousness. People look at my righteousness. When they were pursuing it, Jesus came and he said, I am the only one who can do what you're trying to do. He directly attacked their pride. Israel had come to wrongly interpret the law as a means of salvation. Hear this, from Genesis to Revelation, the law of God was never given to mankind as a way to be saved, period. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, never. The law, so Israel, who had wrongly come to believe that the law was a means of salvation, they rejected Jesus' works as sufficient, as alone sufficient, because it robbed them of their pride of doing their work. Back to our introduction. They wanted their works to count for something in salvation. They didn't want to confess as modern Protestants do, and, and many others, that I have no standing before God apart from Christ. I have no standing apart from God, uh, um, before God, apart from the works of Jesus Christ. I have nothing when I come to God. And so Jesus, this is how he became a rock of offense, a stumbling block. This is where you read many times in Scripture. You read it in 1 Corinthians. You read it in Romans. You read it in the Gospels. And I'm going to go to Matthew quickly, 21. Because Jesus was very self-conscious of this role, of this identity as a stumbling block. Paul here brings up this passage that God had laid a stone, a stone that many rejected. And Jesus said in Matthew 21, 42 to 45, said this. Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the, building, the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Verse 44, listen. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. You think, well, is there a third option with Jesus? Both of those options sound uncomfortable. He's a stumbling block because both options are uncomfortable. One, you fall on him and you're broken to pieces. Friends, that's a better option than the rock falling on you and scattering you like dust. The entrance into the kingdom is painful for your pride. It breaks you to pieces. One way or another, you will encounter this stone. And here's the picture that Jesus was painting. The builders who are holding the plans out and, and going along the job site, they're looking around and they find this stone. And they look at the plans and they say, I don't recognize the stone. So let's 
Move it aside. And we'll go over here and we'll build this thing. We're going to pursue God by our own righteousness. And then comes along the Messiah and turns the plans upside down and, sa and it says, actually, that's the cornerstone. That's the only stone that can't move. There's no way around the stone that is Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the reference point for all righteousness, for all building, for all future of the, of the people of God and the people of uh, reprobation. It is said of Jesus, he is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. In other words, you will rise or fall depending on your relationship to the stone, the cornerstone. He is the reference point. You cannot come to God any other way by any other means. If you are building a righteousness that is of your own works, you will stumble over the stone. You'll notice that many people have no problem speaking of God and God's love and God's plan for everything. But when you bring up Christ, the cornerstone, you get a tension and a coolness in the air with a lot of people. Because he's a stumbling stone. He's the stone that God laid in order to measure the whole earth. And that's why he's offensive. And so even though God is sovereign, as we've seen, people reject Jesus because they hate his works. They hate his righteousness. And they will not pursue faith that robs them of pride. And so people who had no means of accessing God or even knowing what would please him were saved. They were granted a righteousness that comes from outside and the people who believed that their righteousness came from the inside were cut off and hardened. He says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is the chief cornerstone. This is, again, this is the measure of all humanity. You either come to this stone and you are broken to pieces, you believe in him, you will not be disappointed, you will be assured salvation for eternity, or the stone will fall on you and you will be scattered like dust. Psalm 83 it's called an imprecatory psalm. I'm not even sure what the word imprecatory means, but I know that it's a prayer that the wicked would be destroyed, that they would be swept away. That is the same thing that Jesus is talking about. When the stone falls on them, they will be scattered like dust. God deals with his enemies very swiftly when he chooses to do so. But he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You'll be saved. And so Paul... Moving into chapter 10 says, again, back to a, his personal view of Israel. Remember, he came from Israel. He's not speaking of these things coldly. Like, oh, then there's these reprobates over there, the old Jews. Well, what are we going to do with them? He's one of them. He says, these are my brethren. These are my kinsmen. Remember in chapter 9, he says, I would, I would wish myself accursed for their sake. If I could lay down my faith that they would be saved, I would do it. His heart longs for his brothers in his religious tradition and his religious background. Paul understands sovereignty better than anybody else. Okay, can we agree on that? He gets it better than me and you. Yet what does he say? My heart's desire for them and my prayer for them is their salvation. Paul, who has just laid out why they are hard, they're hardened because God is sovereign. And he says, but I still pray for them. I still pray for my brothers in the faith. I pray that they will be saved. Not only is it my prayer, but it's my desire. I'm not praying just because I feel obligated to. I, I want them to be saved. Our duty 
as Christians, when we understand God's sovereignty, is not to proclaim or pronounce judgment or condemnation. Jesus did not even do that. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus' ministry? John chapter 3, Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. Much less for Calvinistic or Reformed Christians to do it, right? We're not here to condemn the world because we understand God's sovereignty. We're here to pray for the world. We're here to serve as ordinary instruments towards salvation. To pray earnestly, even for those who have rejected Jesus, like the Jews. Are there people in your life that you think are beyond salvation because they've heard the gospel and they've rejected it? Of course you know those people. I know those people. Do you desire for their salvation? Do you pray for them? Do you pray for their salvation? Pray compassionately. Pray with desire in your heart. This is my second heading, by the way. I usually share my headings, but I don't. I didn't today. Pray for those who are lost and teach and command the ignorant. So that's what I'm talking about here. Paul moves into what do we do with this division in humanity? We pray for the lost and we teach the ignorant and the zealous, the zealously ignorant. And so when we're praying, we need to recognize that our desires are, are very much the energy that go into our prayers. There's no one better to pray for the person that you know than you because you love them. Paul loves his brothers. He loves his kinsmen. He loves the people in the tribe of Benjamin from which he came. You may love the country from which you came. You may love Canada and see the unbelief and disarray that we're in. And only you can pray with the earnestness and the compassion and the love that you have in your heart. Maybe you love your, your spouse who doesn't believe. Or maybe you love your, your parent or a sibling or a coworker that you just you genuinely care for. That energy needs to be channeled into prayer for them. Your love for them needs to be converted to prayer for them. When your prayers are deeply woven with love for them, you, you pray for the things of God for them. And Paul is saying that the opponent that is present in their lives is a formidable opponent. So we don't just pray, but we teach. We teach. He says, I, for I testify about them. I pray for them for this reason, because I testify about them that they have a zeal for God that is not in accordance with knowledge. This is the opponent. This is the, this is the action of unbelief. Zealously ignorant. Folks, we are in a very in zealous days. We are. Excitable days. People have seldom, at least in my lifetime, seldom been so committed to their religious beliefs. From demonstrations to destruction of public property, tearing down of statues, uh, you know, wild rants in classrooms and on social media. People are zealously pursuing their religious beliefs in the days that we are in. And we are seeing for the first time sort of a more public acceptance of rival religions that are, that are contrary to the scriptures and contrary to the gospel of Christ. And this is a zeal without knowledge. Now Paul is speaking, of course, here about the Jews specifically. And what, what is sobering about this passage, and I think what is maybe one of the bigger take-homes we need to have here is that they have a zeal for God. Did you see that? They have a zeal for God. Capital G. The God of Scripture. 
And I think we as the church always need to start by looking at ourselves. Perhaps I spoke out of turn, turning your attention to the world because we need to look at ourselves. They have a zeal for God that is not in accordance with knowledge. It is possible to have a zeal for God, even the true God of Scripture, to be zealously excited about the things of God, and yet, if it is out of order with knowledge, it is not a saving zeal. That is so sobering. You may be zealous for the doctrines of Scripture, for the commands of God, even for evangelism. You may have a zeal for the things of God and zealously devote yourself to perfecting them in your life and yet be an alien and a stranger from God. Remember Matthew 7? Jesus gave a parable where he said, Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Were we not zealous in your name? And he will say to them on that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. This is a sobering passage for those who are comfortable in the things of God. This is a sobering passage for me. I'm zealous for the things of God. But I'll tell you, when it comes to salvation, God doesn't care. He does care that you're zealous for, for the things of God. Don't think that. If you're apathetic this morning, this is not you know, condoning that and celebrating your apathy. Don't hear that. But I'll tell you that I am zealous for the things of God, and I am cautioned not to measure or lean upon that as assurance for my salvation. You're not a Christian just because you love being a Christian. Is that weird? You're not a Christian because you love being a Christian. I hope you love being a Christian. I hope you love the things of God. I hope you cherish his word. I hope you study it. I hope you evangelize. I hope you love the things of God. But if your zeal is not in accordance with the truth, it is useless. It is chaff. It is nothing. And in this prideful posture, the Jews of that day had a zeal. And so how do you respond to zeal? Knowledge. Knowledge. Passion cannot be a replacement for knowledge. Excitability and zeal is not a replacement for knowledge. You see somebody who's fired up about God, fired up about the gospel. And by the way, they get the highest number of views on YouTube and Instagram and all that because they're exciting. They hop around the stage. They're much more excited to watch than me. I like to hide behind the pulpit. I'm nothing to watch compared to the zeal that you see in many teachers. Now, much of that zeal may be rooted in true salvation. Praise the Lord. But passion cannot be the replacement for knowledge. And I would say in our day, in these, in these I would say last decade, this is a very recent thing. It goes back further. It goes back, in fact, at least 100 years. But I would say in a very focused mainstream way, we have become hostile. Zeal has become hostile to knowledge. Many in the in the very zealous branches of Christianity, actually are hostile toward knowledge. They see knowledge as a hindrance to experience. Christianity must be converted all into an experience that you have. 
into a, into a, a welling up and an overwhelming expression that you feel, an encounter with God. And so churches have reinvented themselves as places of, from being places of instruction to being facilitators of an experience. When you see the kind of energy and thought being put into coordinating lighting and sound and video and multimedia and live music, even smoke machines, when you see the coordination that goes into these things, you can see that churches are inventing themselves as places and facilitators of experience rather than places of instruction. And Paul says they have a zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, zeal must be subservient to knowledge. Zeal is good. Zeal is very good. But it must be subservient to knowledge. It must be guided by knowledge. Knowledge must rule over zeal. One of my favorite passages from the Psalms, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I don't know where it's from. Uh, David says to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? And and in that, I see the, the Christian thought of the mind instructing the heart, instructing the passions. Why are you feeling the way you're feeling, body? Don't you know that God is faithful? Don't you know that the kingdom is coming? Don't you know that you are secure in Christ? It's the mind ruling the passions. That is the order of zeal. It must have dominion over it. The other thing is that passion tends toward persuasion. Passion is persuasive, isn't it? Passion is contagious. Passion is inviting. Passion is exciting. Fashion, passion draws a crowd. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, Justin Trudeau is never more excited than when he's on the campaign trail. And he also seems never more angry than when he's on the campaign trail. There's a passion that comes out that defies logic, it defies lawfulness. The things that come out on the campaign trail so far have been insane totally outside of what's lawful or acceptable for Canadian culture. And yet, it's flowing out of a passion for popularity. It's persuasive. It draws people. It can tend towards dominance. Passion can be domineering. Passion can even be coercive. For good and for ill. So when we contend with ignorant passion, which Paul says, that's what's going on with the Jews. They are zealous and they're ignorant. That's a tough combination. It's not for the faint of heart to contend with zealous ignorance. It's not. It's not an easy thing. It's not a a gentle sort of reason and and, and maybe, you know, persuade and and be, you know, winsome. It's not for the faint of heart to deal with zealous ignorance. Some people are ignorant and they're not so zealous and they'll have a calm conversation with you. It's the zealous that need to be contended with and it's not for the passive or merely genteel. But it must be conducted with loving fortitude. Paul said to Timothy, teach and command these things. Let no one disregard you. Paul said to the young preacher Timothy. Jude in his letter wrote, I felt compelled to you, sorry, I felt compelled to urge you to earnestly contend for the faith for certain individual whose destruction was written long ago have slipped in among you. 
Paul also wrote to Titus, an elder must hold fast to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. The church has to stand against zealous ignorance. For those who would pervert and corrupt the gospel because their zeal is not in accordance with what? Knowledge. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Verse 4, Christ. Okay? That's, that's what, how this sermon lands. They didn't know or refused to believe that Christ was the, was the righteousness of God that they needed to submit to. Key word there is submit. They failed to submit to God's righteousness. My final point, it's to give and live by the truth. As the call of the Christian in the days that we're in is to give the truth and to live by the truth. They failed to submit to God's righteousness. That is, what is God's righteousness? It's in Christ. How do we know that? Verse 4 says, He is an end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. That's how you know that Christ is all the right. Any righteousness that's you're, that you're going to get from God for you is through Christ. We're not talking about God's righteousness of his own character, his personal inherent righteousness. We're talking about the righteousness that is given as a gift. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Seeking to establish their own, they alienate themselves from God. They earnestly pursued God by virtue of establishing their own righteousness. And it was even the righteousness as laid out in the law of Moses. Remember, you can be zealous for the Bible. You can be zealous about what it says. But if you are trying to establish your righteousness before God, using the Bible, you'll still find that you are alien to God. Whereas faith, the righteousness that comes by faith looks like Peter when he meets Christ in Luke 5, 8. I want to look at Peter ever so briefly. Peter in Luke 5, 8, when Jesus tells them to catch, to cast the net on the other side, and that there were so many fish, both boats began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's how faith responds to Jesus Christ. Go away from me, Christ. I am sinful. When I come into the light of your righteousness, all I see is my sin. My sin is laid bare and exposed before you. Faith, so I'll put it this way, works. When you're, when you're establishing your own righteousness, when you come to church, when you come to God, when you come to Christ, you come with your arms full. Here you go, God. I got it. Where do you want this stuff? On your feet, arms full of your good works. Faith meets Jesus bowed down and arms empty. That's the difference. Faith meets Christ like Peter. Works meets Christ like a Pharisee praying in the street. That's the difference between faith and works in terms of how we express it. Christ is an end of the law for those... Uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes. This verse has been badly misused. He's an end of the law for righteousness. Not he's an end of the law, period. And there's a massive difference between those two 
iterations of that sentence. He is an end of the law for righteousness. He brings you into a rest from your works. Christ does not obliterate the law. He brings you into rest from works that you believe would save you. He is, he is your checkered flag. The race is over in terms of trying to earn God's righteous favor. Christ is the end of that for you. But he does not remove the law again from the Christian's life. Remember Romans 3. Do we nullify the law? No, we establish it. And I want to talk about misunderstanding this one more time because we are in far more danger in our church culture today. We are in far more danger of setting aside the law than we are of over-applying it. So if you see me erring on the side of expositing the, the law, it's because that's what we're in danger of losing. If I saw us as a, as a church and as a culture of churches that were trying to please God through the law, I would be, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. It's the end. For the, but that's not happening. We have set aside the law, and this error opens up to our worst weakness, back to my introduction. Our worst weakness is that we want to build and stand on and take pride in our work. This is very good in some areas of your life. If you're starting a business, if you're trying to parent your children, if you are you know, an architect, if you are you know, cleaning roads, you do it well. That's your service to Christ in this world. That's great. But when it comes to salvation, no, no. And so when we set aside the law, it opens up to our worst weakness, which is to establish our own righteousness apart from his revealed righteousness, which is the law. The law of God helps us guard against building our own law. And this occurs when we establish our own set. Listen to this very carefully. This happens when we establish our own set of ethics and norms and controls that are within reach of human achievement, which inflates our pride. When you set aside the Ten Commandments, I want to put this very simple. I think as G.K. Chesterton said, if you will not be ruled by the Ten Commandments, you will be ruled by the Ten Thousand. And so when you set aside the law of God, because, well, we're not under law, but we're under grace. Those are the churches, those are the people that tend to bring in 10,000 new commands to help guide you through morality. 10,000 new regulations flutter in to show you what is righteous. But the problem is those are all man-made rules that are designed to make you feel good about achieving them. Because you can. You can achieve these. That's why the law of God is so important because it shows us that although we strive for it, we cannot achieve them. It constantly drives us back to the gospel of grace through faith. Achieving these man-made rules has no value in salvation. It alienates us from God even while we think we're getting closer. Friends, today we are still adrift in this same lawlessness, in these man-made laws. And I'm going to go here. The church today, many churches are willing to impose medical regulations that they see as a substitute for righteousness or as an expression of righteousness. Whether it's a mask or a vaccine, they claim they give it lawful status, that this is what we do to love our neighbor. And it's cloaked in language that sounds righteous and pious. 
It's they, they claim it's a fulfillment of God's law, and it increases what? Self-righteousness. Why do you think these mandates have become so popular in our culture? Because it's a way that people can show their self-righteousness. I'm not saying if you've ever worn one, it's because you think you're self-righteous. I'm saying there's a reason why people are so addicted to these signs. Because it's a symbol of self-righteousness. It's a symbol of adherence to a law. You know why? Because people are craving righteousness. They're desperate to show themselves as part of a greater good. And friends, I don't blame the world for that. They need the gospel. The worst is when the church has taken their standard for righteousness and said, we will make it our own. We will make these measures a measure of our righteousness. We will make these the laws that govern us because we refuse to be governed by God's law. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, he didn't mean ask your neighbor what they want and give it to them. Jesus said, loving your neighbor is a fulfillment of the law. So study the law and apply the law to love your neighbor. Do not accept as law rules that are attainable and man-made. Don't accept them as law because they're, they're not. There's no humility in establishing this level of righteousness. Have you ever met a person who is very strict with their own set of laws that you found particularly humble? Not me. People who are really good at keeping and enforcing their own laws are terribly uncharitable, they're judgmental, and they're often coercive. People submitted to God's law in general, and they ought to be full of grace. Because when we pursue, when I'm pursuing God's law in my life, I'm constantly reminded that I fall short. So when I meet you and I find you pursuing God's law and failing, I totally understand where you're at. I totally relate to you. And I want to strive together as Christians to fulfill and bring about obedience to God's law. Because by God's grace, that's what he's establishing in us. So reject man-made laws that are expressions of self-righteousness. That doesn't mean don't, don't do those things. It doesn't mean don't get the vaccine because I'm saying it's a sign of sin. No, I'm not saying that either. But I'm saying don't accept these as laws that will establish your righteousness. Do them because they are right for you, because you've chosen them, because they are a part of your personal family medical practice. Don't accept them as religious rules because they are nothing of the sort. The gospel says that Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law for you and he has absorbed God's judgment for your failure to attain it. And so this is how it works. In Christianity, we give Jesus all the credit. So if you're not willing to give Jesus all the credit, he'll be a stumbling block to you. Jesus says, I fulfilled the law. We say, yes, Jesus, you did. You literally rule. You are king. You alone are righteous. You alone are sufficient. He gets all the credit, all the glory, all the praise, and all we have to do is admit that we are the ones that made him do it. We are the ones that put our sin upon him. We admit that we provided the sin. He provides the righteousness. We give him the praise, and we worship him in joy. That's how Christianity sort of works in a nutshell. If your works are a part of this mix, then pride will creep into your Christian life. And I pray that the gospel is killing our pride. 
and making us gracious and compassionate Christians willing to contend for this truth. Here's sort of the uh, counterintuitive bit. I will fight to the death for the truth that Jesus gets all the credit. I don't preach boldly and I don't say these doctrines because I, you know, I am so great. And it's easy to misunderstand that. When you see somebody speaking boldly in the things of God, you say, well, they're full of pride. Maybe, but maybe it's because if we lose this doctrine, if we lose these precious truths, there is no salvation. So I will argue to the death with somebody who believes that you can add your works to salvation or that you can establish self-righteousness through man-made rules and import them into the church as a means of godliness. I will. Christian, friends, we need to be marked by compassion and prayer for the lost. Don't lose that. We understand that God is sovereign both to save the religiously proud and the pagan outsider. There's a remnant in Israel and there is salvation outside of Israel. Anybody can be saved, whatever their religious background. We must not be offended by the cornerstone. And our pride should remind us of why we need him to be the way that he is, a rock that breaks us to pieces so that all our self-righteousness is pulverized and we become humble. We must also be bold in the truth. We must not yield to ignorant zeal. Don't yield to ignorant zeal. Do not yield to ignorant zeal. It is not godly to move over and give the stage to a zealously ignorant person. Do not yield to it. It is not the sign of Christian grace to move over and let ignorant zeal be predominant. We must be bold in the truth. And we must preserve and teach God's law, not as a means of salvation, but as a guard against the formation of man-made religion. God's law, when it is preserved, it, it preserves us from creating a man-made, self-righteous religion that will damn us. Isn't that crazy to wrap your mind around? The law doesn't save you, but when you hold to the law, it preserves you from creating something that will damn you. That is a mercy. So let's teach and understand God's law, not be ruled by 10,000 commands. Let us not give in to a religion that gives the appearance of godliness but provides no salvation. Let us cling to the gospel of Christ, submit to the, right, the righteousness that is in Christ, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's why he who believes in him will not be disappointed. They will not be disappointed because they will enter a rest in a freedom that they have never felt before. That's the joy of coming to Christ. It's not like, well, now you've got to climb this ladder. Now that you're in the organization, you've got to get to the top. No. You come to Christ and you are saved. You are not disappointed in any way, shape, or form. I pray that we as the 21st century church would cling to and preserve this gospel. Let me close in prayer. And I think we have a final song.